Okay, hello everyone. Welcome to a very special Full Stop podcast today. Uh, it's special for two reasons. First, we have a big announcement, but we also finally have some new voices on the podcast. So we have from Exotic Buffalo, New York, Jesse Miller. Hi, Jesse. Hey, Mike. And Jesse, do you want to say what you do for Full Stop? Sure, yeah. So I'm one of the reviews editors for the site, so I help decide what we're going to review, and I work with the reviewers to get their get their stuff ready for the site. So we're also joined by Helen Staramarine from St. Petersburg in the Russian Federation. Helen, do you want to say what you do for Full Stop? I edit the features section. Mostly I edit features that we publish in our newsletter, which is just for Patreon subscribers. So for those listening to this podcast a month after it was released, they could get the newsletter and the podcast earlier as Patreon subscribers. So subscribe on yes. Patreon. <laughs> a great pitch for many, <laughs> many products. Um, so we're gathered today because we have a special announcement. This year, full stop fashion this year means maybe three months after intended. We're launching our full stop fellows program. So we had a call for potential fellows to develop some long-form criticism literary projects that would span the site and go for six months or so. It was a highly competitive process. Uh, We only had two fellow positions and we had over 70 really excellent applications. So what we're going to do in the episode today is meet our two fellows. And maybe I'll have Helen and Jesse maybe say a word or two in introduction, then we'll hear hear them themselves. Helen, do you want to say anything about our first fellow? Um, our first fellow is Rebecca Ruth Gould. Her project explores the link between translation and activism. It's composed of a set of interviews as well as a as a set of curated book reviews by Palestinian students in Gaza, focusing on the work of James Baldwin. So you'll hear more about this project, and you'll be seeing the results of it in the months to come. But it's a really, really exciting project and something that we were especially attracted to as it's one of our kind of central goals as a site to highlight works in translation and to also think critically about translation as a practice and its particular role in literary production. Great. And Rebecca came to us from outside of the orbit of our normal writers, but we wanted to set aside one fellow spot for someone who's contributed a lot to the site. So our second fellow is uh, Nabil Keshev. Again, apologies for mispronouncing names. Nabil's been writing for Full Stop for years now, writing really interesting book reviews, and he has developed a wild, sprawling project on travel and travel writing in its various forms and presentations. I think one of the things that was particularly exciting to us about that project is the fact that he wanted to focus on this genre of travel writing, which at first was something that we were kind of skeptical of as a a genre that we don't really focus on and don't really take seriously. And part of what excited us about it is that the project seems to be aimed at prompting us to think about, you know, both why we don't take travel writing seriously and what kinds of experiments are going on in travel writing that maybe we should be taking seriously. Absolutely. And maybe two two things before we get to the interviews themselves, because people want to hear our fellows. One, we've been on the other side of this process so many times and have experienced so many (laughs) rejection letters. And will continue Uh, to be on the other side of this process many more times. 
So do you think, I, personally, I, I was so gratified by the process and it was also very humbling because having undergone this experience, but we had such a really excellent range of applications and we'll actually be seeing some of them on the site in different forms as we go forward. But do you have any reflections on the process of going through these applications? Yeah. One of the things that we were trying to do with the Full Stop Fellows program was to create uh, a kind of opportunity that doesn't seem to exist in other other places, which is not just supporting writing or supporting a book project, but, but supporting something that's really intended for an online space, but not just in the sort of like reacting immediately to to current events or something like that. So something that's online, but also out of time. Um, it's something that experiments with some of the different uh, genres of online writing. So book reviews and interviews and things that are recorded and things that are communicated through email and all, all that kind of stuff. Um, and so it was really cool to see how uh, the different applicants were, were imagining these possibilities. Uh, and I hope that in the future, we can continue to do this Full Stop Fellows program and see some more of those kinds of experiments. Yeah. And this maybe would be a good time to say that anyone listening should also take inspiration from these projects, because we will try to do this program again in the future. And hopefully, it'll be a way to sort of highlight a more elaborate kind of online writing project than we're generally able to do something that's not just a book review and essay one-off but a sustained project that's more of the scale of a book or something but taking shape kind of serially and online okay so without further ado we're going to start with nabil um, and then we're going to hear from rebecca and then we're going to end the episode with uh, a reading from nabil um, so thanks jesse and helen for joining us. Thanks, Mike. Making your podcast debuts. Okay, and we'll we'll all gather again on the podcast sometime soon. Welcome to Beal to the Full Stop Podcast. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. You are one of our two inaugural fellows this year for the Full Stop Fellows program. And I'm talking to you from Siberia and you're in Philadelphia, even though we used to be neighbors. <laughs> so maybe to start, could you just tell us a bit about yourself other than that you live in Philadelphia? Sure. So I'm the, um, what's called the digital scholarship librarian over here at Swarthmore College. Um, I've been here for around six years. I published a book a couple years ago called The Obvious Earth. And that was a sort of culmination of an embarrassingly long time, potentially 10 years worth of essays uh, in and around travel. And I think that has really kind of set, set the tone for some of my writing since then, thinking about, I, I went to school in Montana for poetry. And um, since then, I've basically exclusively been writing nonfiction. So, so there's a little bit of that. I spent a great deal of time with my cat and have this kind of ongoing complexifying love-hate relationship with this very strange city, which is Philadelphia. <laughs> I would ask you to say more about Philadelphia, um, but maybe we can have that conversation off the podcast. <laughs> so I find it to be a very perplexing and alluring city. Yeah, well. definitely, definitely. I actually just wrote this essay and it, I think it's gonna come out in like a tiny chapbook 
just my first foray into trying to come to terms with Philly. But we'll see how that goes. Cool. Now, I was going to ask you how you came to this theme of travel writing, because that was the, uh, the application that you sent to us and the project that you described. Uh, but it sounds like you've been interested in travel writing and working on this for a long time. But you've also been doing some recent work on it. You organized a panel at AWP. So maybe you could give the listeners a sense of sort of how you're thinking about travel writing today and how that congealed into the project that you proposed. Yeah, absolutely. I'll admit that, uh, you know, my kind of obsession really came out of a family compunction. So it's pretty self-absorbed. It's a sort of like coming to terms with my own family. My father was, is pretty obsessed with and, and continues to be. Uh, and so as a child, you know, by the time I was 18, I'd gone to like seven continents and 35 countries. And so trying to figure out what does that even mean, especially being a child of immigrant parents, you know, skip a bunch of years. Uh, you know, I found myself kind of returning to essay writing and nonfiction after, after kind of focusing deeply in poetry. And then looking at all these essays, I realized I was still just trying to come to terms with what travel means to me. And so the AWP panel, and I have to, to mention that Karen Balin was, was, was absolutely instrumental in like putting that together and, and helping me um, think about it was uh, a way of really like wrapping my head around this larger project, which seems to be coming to terms with uh, travel, traveling, and displacement as it appears in, in literature. So it was kind of like a, a stepping back, but it also felt like a natural progression. I just wanted to point that out because it w felt illogical at the time, but only in retrospect does it seem like a nice sweep or a narrative sweep. In terms of what I've been thinking about, it's really kind of this effort to piece together a bunch of little things that uh, have been burgeoning or, or, or that, I, that have been sort of simmering for a while. You know, as I kind of delve more deeply into like what is cultural exchange or what even is uh, kind of making the unknown knowable, I think about like language itself and sort of like uh, going deeply enough, I'm sort of like, what is not travel writing? And so there's, uh, there's that kind of uh, after writing those essays, kind of engaging a bunch of thinkers that have been considering this much more deeply than I had uh, previously encountered. And so that was like really eye-opening. So folks like James Clifford, uh, Julie Kristeva, um, readings in Uncanny. Uh, I do a lot of digital work in my library setting. And so I've been reading sort of like, uh, there's a lovely book called Code Space, thinking about sort of digital placemaking. And then with Karen, we came up with this panel that is sort of like anti-travel writing in a certain sense. Um, three writers, uh, oh, sorry, four writers, myself included, that don't necessarily think of themselves as travel writers. So they included Karen Balin, who's um, not most recent, but second most recent book, Spain, was a sort of work of autofiction off of Rescue Press, thinking about her work and the sort of artist residency in Spain. Stephen Dunn, who was in the Navy and wrote this very strange sort of memoir, uh, fiction, archival excavation called Water and Power. And then and Hilary Plum, whose work uh, Strawberry Fields was published on, on Fence. And that also was a sort of investigation, interrogation of all these different like geographical points across the globe. Uh, but she herself is actually, uh, for, for many reasons, actually cannot travel, which is kind of interesting. So she can actually, for a number of reasons, um, leave. Uh, but she herself, like in her work, has constantly been engaged with different sort of places of geopolitical conflict and, and uh, military interventions. 
That's great. Now, all of those are actually full stop related people in one way or the other. So it's nice to hear those names. But you also mentioned James Clifford and some older, maybe the question is, how do you relate to the sort of classical tradition of travel writing? Was that ever of interest to you? You mentioned in your proposal, leaving behind the grand tour and this kind of Orientalist ethnographic writing. Um, but was there ever anything in the tradition of, of, of more formally recognized travel writing that, that caught your attention? Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I, I definitely read, you know, in very strangely, and I think he's a complex figure, but I read V.S. Naipaul in trying to understand India, right? So my own personal relationship with India uh, was weirdly na- uh, uh, mediated by travel writing about India. And he himself had this very complex relationship with that country, but basically wrote travel writing about there. And he was part of this crew, you know, all these like post-war British dudes, Bruce Chatwin, Paul Theroux. Um, the person I probably, the only person I would still read right now is uh, Jan Morris, who really comes out of that same tradition. She was with Sir Edmund Hillary when when there was an initial sort of uh, Everest expedition in the 50s and continued to write dozens and dozens of these sort of straight ahead travel books, but they're such lovely prose and ability to sort of like romanticize every like small discomfort and uh, strange relic of empire that exists all over the world. And Jan, Jan's work is amazing in so many different ways, um, not the least of which was this book that came out of New York Review of Books publishing a work of fiction actually called Hav, which was this very strange book about a kind of a made up place, but was at the kind of armpit of these three sort of empires, the Ottoman, the Roman, and sort of Central Asian empires, and sort of uh, taking apart the genre of travel writing by sort of exploring this one place. Um, and maybe maybe I'll add one one other person who has kind of been interesting to me in terms of sort of, I wouldn't call him a traditional travel writer anyway, but um, uh, I actually think Nabokov has navigated this kind of amazingly in different ways. There's this passage I kind of revert to very often. If you wouldn't mind, I, I might read it. If you, It's from the yeah. book Glory, which is not actually my favorite book, but it has this like lovely passage and I feel like it, um, it captures something of what I'm interested in. So this is the the main character, Martin. He's kind of on this train. He's left his family. Uh, Travel, said Martin softly, and repeated this word for a long time until he had squeezed all meaning out of it, upon which he set aside the long, silky skin it had shed. And next moment, the word had returned to life. Star, mist, velvet, tra-velvet. He would articulate carefully and marvel every time how tenuously the sound endures the sense endures in the sound. In what a remote spot this young man had arrived, what far lands he had already seen. What was he doing here at night in the mountains? And why was everything in the world so strange, so thrillful? Thrillful? Martin repeated aloud, and like the word, another star went tumbling. <laughs> and the reason I, I, I just think that's love, it's a kind of like lovely Nabokovian, like over, overwritten, but in the most, in the most lovely way. But also this is very, this sort of romanticized uh, character who's after adventure at this point is trying to sneak across the border back into the country he was born in, which was Russia, 
uh, which is a very strange inversion of sort of like what what one ought to be doing when they are traveling or exploring. Yeah. Now, from overwritten Nabokovian and pro prose, you you are also interested in looking at very contemporary forms of travel writing in building a kind of strange, growing experimental archive through personal surveys, through looking at um, Yelp and Travelocity and these kinds of places. So matching with sort of like, what is the terrain that you'd like to travel across in, in, in assembling this project? Yeah, no, I, I feel like there's a, travel is an excuse to put together authors who might not otherwise go together. Um, I do feel like um, there's a contemporary moment, uh, kind of anxiety around displacement and about place making, but as a subject, one is you know late cap you know in late capitalism, one is asked to kind of traverse all kinds of boundaries and to explain yourself. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, most recent works that I've been reading are uh, we we were talking earlier about Olga Tokorutsuk. Uh, Olga Tokorutsuk, her flights is a kind of an excellent book. Uh, Brandon Shimoda's new book, uh, The Grave on the Wall. Um, really thinking about how he's kind of um, traveling not only to kind of encounter and excavate family history that may or may not be there, um, this being in Japan, uh, but also knowing so many writers, himself included, uh, where displacement is part of being a writer. There's so much precarity involved, even if the novel takes place in some place uh, fully formed, fully fledged, uh, one has had to stitch together writing residencies and house sitting gigs in order to even mm -hmm. uh, make that do the labor of making that work happen. I mentioned Karen Balin's amazing book, Spain. There's some uh, new poets working uh, in, in this. Um, uh, sorry, Susan Briante has been working in sort of uh, this for, for, for a while now. I think her book off of Asada is you know, more than 10 years old and um, some pioneers in the motion, in the study of motion. I was pretty excited to read some new work coming from Rachel Levitsky as well as Camden Hillard, um, and I was hoping to reach out to them. The Mexican novelist Yuri Herrera has been writing some really interesting things, which I bring up, bring up some, this dreamy surreal way in which we might uh, consider border crossings or how our, you know, very identities are, are marked by these borders. And I think that these are all important aspects of sort of like how we might get at some sort of um, a sense of a, of a travel writing now, right? Because uh, the sense of a traveler is already fictive. The idea of a stable subject that has a place that they're from and a place that they're going to, that they uh, have that sort of uh, mobility and leisure to leave everything behind for, you know, whatever period or duration. All of these things are a subject to, um, question are, and are potentially under threat right now. So the, mm -hmm. the grand tour, this idea that you might be able to reproduce class by, uh, you know, taking a year off and, and visiting the sites of antiquity to sort of internalize what is your Western sort of heritage is broken apart. And I think ways that I think are, are totally productive and interesting and very, very strange. Mm -hmm. it, it seems like you're also interested in, um, well, it's, it's kind of an odd thing because we live in an age that's completely saturated by images. And when you travel, you're meant to produce a giant archive of images. Um, I'm doing this right now, living in an exotic, you know, Siberia. It's an exotic place, <laughs> not when you're actually out there on the streets, but um, to the imagination of the people in the U.S. Um, but you're interested in how we use images to present travel 
And going back to things like, uh, you referred to the Magic Lantern Society and these slideshows from the 70s. So I'm, I'm maybe interested in, in hearing about how you think about the relation between image and text, which you've mostly spoken of before um, in yeah. the genre, broadly construed of travel writing. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I think that the sort of augmented illustrated slide, so these are these uh, lectures that were the most common way of let me see, of doing this sort of like cross-cultural translation was touring lecturers who would have these magic lantern slides, these glass plates. Um, in fact, I just saw uh, these archivists give a magic lantern performance uh, a few weeks ago, which was kind of stunning. And it's kind of an unbroken train, um, the relationship between the commercial illustrated slide lecture, you know, these visual resource collections that were kind of moldering in all of the major universities in the world, these art history departments have these sort of visual resources collections where the uh, faculty were basically were had to travel and collect their own slides of the uh, of um, sort of Greek or Roman ruins, um, and so these collections are just out there, you know, to the history of portable cameras and the ways in which both the camera and a sort of leisure culture of uh, travel and then creating artifacts or documenting that travel, that technological uh, innovation was sort of built in. And then, you know, personally, it's, it's, it's incredibly important to me in the way that I like see myself, only in the sense that my father and my parents were like obsessed with the travels, both that they did with us, but the traveling they did before us. So we were like subject to these slideshows kind of interminable. And when I wrote an essay that kind of referred to that and used that, and at one point I did some kind of interactive reading experiment where everyone in the audience was sort of subject to the slideshow, but they could also sort of interrupt the slideshow by texting a certain number and other kinds of images would appear that would interrupt my performance or my presentation. People really responded to this. And I, I think there was something there that had yet been sort of unexamined. And then, you know, and that was like at the beginning of sort of the way in which social media shapes how and where and why we sort of encounter any place at all, right? It's like uh, there's something else going on now, which I think is fascinating and I have yet to kind of fully explore it. Maybe one, one element is the, the sort of trend of these exhibits. So you would, you would go to a city and there might be a, a short-term for-profits or commercial exhibit uh, where there are these sort of set pieces they're potentially public art but but maybe not you pay an exorbitant amount of money they're basically like instagram fun houses uh and that they've happened in austin and philadelphia and new york um so you would like travel someplace for the express purpose of situating yourself in that area and then and then documenting it uh and i felt like that's such a pure expression of what of what i'm i'm talking about and then maybe the dark side of that is um there's a photographer elise Mdur who's done this amazing and, and kind of heartbreaking project on these fictive murals in the visiting rooms of prisons. And so they're often of, uh, you know, the Eiffel Tower or the Statue of Liberty or some sort of unnamed bucolic setting, a brook, a mountain brook or a, um, or a desert or, or a, um, some kind of a, uh, palm tree, tropical paradise, and you're expected to sort of situate yourself in front of that and take a picture with your loved one while you yourself are, are incarcerated. And I think that these are all very intimately intertwined moments of, of, um, of representing oneself 
and the sort of language of travel that's kind of escaped itself. Sorry, the visual language of travel that's ex escaped itself and sort of exceeded its own definitions. Well, there's clearly a lot you've been thinking about, and we'll see some of the fruits of it in the next several months over the over the different sections of the website. And thank you for uh, introducing yourself to the the growing Full Stop podcast audience. <laughs> This most recent episode. Uh, totally a pleasure. Thanks, Mike. <laughs> okay. Thanks. We'll hear from Nabil again later in the podcast, but first, let's introduce our second fellow, Rebecca Ruth Gould. Hello, Rebecca Ruth Gould, one of our inaugural Full Stop fellows. Welcome to the Full Stop podcast. Thank you. It's great to be talking to you. Do you think you could start by just telling us a bit about your background and maybe what led you to your interest in translation? Sure. Probably since as long as I've been literate, I've been reading books in translation. I mean, I, they, I can't really separate out a moment when I was not interested in translation from when I was reading books. So uh, first it was um, Russian literature. Uh, really since my teenage years, but but particularly uh, when I was an undergraduate at Berkeley, um, I was majoring in Russian, and then I traveled to Russia, and really, it was the 19th century novel, everything, I read mostly in translation, uh, but then I had to read, to learn Russian to be able to to see the a, a different dimension to the text I was reading, and I fell in love with Russian poetry, and then I lived in Tbilisi for two years and uh, discovered Georgian literature, fell in love with Georgian poetry. And I, I realized that the, the best way of giving that a kind of language or even a, a, giving in, doing something with that passion and that love was through translation, that, that translating poetry in particular enabled me to be a poet and it, for, for the time of translating that poem and, and also Persian literature, I began studying that in Tbilisi. So it's, it's really a way of reading for me and it's, it's, I can't separate it out uh, from, from just being literate. There's another part of your interest in translation, which is it's linked to activism and mm -hmm. you've either yes. just published or it's about to be published this, this sure. handbook. Um, yes. Yeah, so maybe give us a sense of the uh, sort of linguistic, geographic, and thematic range sure. of this collection, and we'll eventually come to talk about how it relates to your project. Sure, great. Yeah, it's a really gargantuan project. We did finish, it's co-edited with uh, Kivan Tahmasebian, an Iranian poet. We did finish the editing process, so it's now with the publisher. It'll take a few months, though, before it's published uh, sometime maybe mid-2020, probably. Yeah, it was really a gargantuan process. That's a Rutledge Handbook of Translation and Activism. In some cases, I think if it had been a more kind of, it's part of a series on translation uh, studies. And if it had been a more conventional topic, like even something like literary translation or something that had been done before, I might not have been as attracted to the project. But there really isn't any comprehensive, detailed volume on translation activism. And uh, it's a really long, for reference or for information, it's, it has 30 contributors. So the manuscript is around 900 pages. Uh, oh, wow. It's a lot of work and a lot of education, I think, for, for both of us. Yeah, so the geographic range, which I think it had to be, we, we wanted it to be something, and, and the, the publisher, uh, Rutledge, expected it to be something sort of 
really, not, 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 I mean, it's impossible to be comprehensive, but something that really covers a lot of the world. And, and uh, so it's, I think we're, there's particular strengths in African literatures and in uh, Middle Eastern literatures, Iran, uh, Turkey, the Arab world. Uh, we have several contributions on Latin America and uh, looking at uh, bilingualism, uh, particularly among immigrants in the United States, we have a few uh, contributions on that. And also East Asia, we have several contributions on China, both covering a, a wide historical range. South Asia, of course, I, I was really happy we were able to include uh, Dalit uh, literature. So, and of course, these are areas that that I am not an expert in, um, but it took, so it took a lot of learning, uh, reading the contributions several times, and kind of especially the, the I think, educational part for me was to, to put them in conversation with each other. So to think about how, say, Dalit literature relates to what is happening in Japan or, or what's happening in, in the United States among migrants. And uh, in the introduction, we bring some of those themes together and, and started to think about translational activism. I mean, it's really, it's a kind of, not that it's it's limited to modernity, but but really it's it's one of the you could you could think of it very much as a kind of the, the role of the translators activist it is really covers a lot of the major political struggles of modernity. So so yeah, it was great great fun to work on, and I hope hope other people benefit from it as well. And it seems like in some ways that your project for Full Stop is an extension of this. Um, in particular, mm-hmm. I'm thinking about this complicated but exciting scheme to start a James Baldwin reading group in Gaza. So uh, right. I wonder right. if you could maybe talk a bit about the connection between the Full Stop Project and some of this. Sure. So obviously that's thinking about translation as we did as we, in the volume itself in the very broadest of possible senses. A translator, translation is not just sitting behind your desk and, and rendering a text from one language into the other. It's, 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 it's looking at, not even just a text, but looking at something that has a linguistic form and shape and that is given meaning through language uh, in one context and, and, and bringing that into conversation with another. And so that applies to both how the volume is conceived and to how this project is conceived. I have been working on Palestine off and on for, for a long time, really since 2011, uh, when I lived in Bethlehem. And I wrote about the wall that was actually right outside my window. And I... Of course, you know, there's a lot that I, that I can't fully access just because, you know, I haven't been born there, I haven't lived there. But seeing how Palestinians read, say, American text or how they think about the, the major struggles in, in uh, American history uh, has, has enabled me to see different sides of my own culture, my own history. And so when I contacted a colleague who's now based in the UK, uh, she's teaching at Leeds and from, originally from Gaza. I've, I'm working with her on a few projects related to Palestine. And she's very interested in supporting the building of education in universities within Gaza. Her suggestion was, was to do a reading group. Uh, it made a lot of sense. And there's an ongoing reading group right now in, in Gaza of students who um, uh, both read materials in Arabic and English as well. Um, and they, they talk about them on a weekly basis, I think also they watch films. And uh, so she put me in touch with, with her, it was her, her former professor there. And uh, we, we traded some, some ideas for what, what authors might have the most resonance for, for these students in Gaza. And James Baldwin, somehow his name came up. I, I love his work. And this professor also knew of James Baldwin. There seems to be actually kind of interest, uh, not just Malcolm X in a kind of African-American struggle, 
within within Gaza. That's uh, so so there's a lot of different different names for different African American writers, and I just thought James Baldwin would be a, a great choice. So um, so so how does since the trans the aspect of translation is really not a linguistic, not just a linguistic transposition because James Baldwin will be read in English, but a transcultural. You know what what does it mean to to think about the struggles of of African Americans or notes from the native son, those, these kinds of texts uh, in, a, in a Palestinian context. And this actually leads to maybe um, my last question. And it's something that we've been self-conscious about at Full Stop because we, I, I was a graduate student and now teach at a university. We have people kind of moving in and out of the university and it's been mm-hmm. a resource, mm-hmm. but, but we don't want to fall into the trap mm-hmm. of just getting sort of cloistered in the resource, or sorry, in the right. institution. Um, right. It seems like by focusing on translation, there's right. also something about translating between your academic life and your life as an activist or putting communities in Absolutely. contact with one another. So yeah. maybe if you could speak a bit to, to that aspect of your work as well. Absolutely, yes. So um, as I said, this was... I- the offer to uh, from the publisher to work on this this handbook, even though it, it does involve a lot of even you could say even boring work about like checking permissions, this kind of stuff. I mean, uh, but but I, I really wanted to do it uh, precisely because of the topic, because of the intersection of translation and activism. And I told them from from the beginning. I mean, usually with a handbook like this, you would just have it 100% act, uh, sorry 100% academics with with a sort of standard handbook on translation. You know, introduction to X Y Z. Usually, it's it's academics contributing their in knowledge, systematizing it. Uh, but I really thought, well, this is an opportunity to involve creative writers and poets with the book. Uh, we have different sections on, a, we begin with this sort of theoretical uh, overview of the practice of translation in uh, Italy, Iran, and Japan, but then moving quickly to um, inter- practicing interpreters. So we look at people who are, are again, not, don't just do translation as, a, as an academic pursuit, but, but act- actively interpret, and look, then look at activists. For example, the, one of my favorite chapters is by someone, Aisha Juskan, who I'll be interviewing for Full Stop. She's a Turkish translator and activist, and right around the time that we had, she actually, right before she submitted her chapter to us, we had to hurry to give our edits because she was going to prison. And she's been in prison. I think she was just released uh, for her being her writings on Palestine and other political talk, topics in Turkey. Um, so she's very much, it's, it's a, she writes a very personal essay. It, it's not an academic essay at all. It's about that the title is written on the heart in broken English. So it's about sort of dealing with English as a translator who is committed to challenging imperial legacies. And that includes challenging global English in a sense, because everywhere she goes, English is the the dominant language of communication, even if she speaks, say, with Arab activists. And and what what are the politics of that? What are the implications of that? So it's a really beautiful essay. Then we have another essay by a Palestinian poet who's... uh, translating his own poetry from Arabic into English. And so he incorporates his poetry into the text. And I, I would say these, these essays do not qualify really as academic essays, but I never wanted them to be. I wanted them to be creative reflections on uh, translation as an activist practice that moves outside the classroom. And that's why I, it's always been my engagement with translation has always been as a way of sort of moving beyond just pure academic analysis. I think it's clear that we have a very large proportion of poets and uh, human rights activists also are contributing to the volume. So a lot of them are, are about how languages and texts move 
across continents and cultures outside of a university context. I guess what, what might also be worth, worth thinking about is what can an academic approach, like what's, what's the point of, of, of even, you know, presuming to bring all these different perspectives together in a, what is at some level also an academic or we might say analytical context? What's the value of that? How do these two different uh, methodologies or ways of thinking about literature and text work? And I think that the value, one thing that perhaps we were able to do that wouldn't have been so easy to do in, um, say, a, a non-academic publisher is that is really the kind of the systematic that, that we are really able to bring. I mean, we have 30 contributions from such a wide geography. So there's this kind of comparative systematic dimension, which I think is helped by having something like an academic framework. It, it just enables us to kind of go further geographically, historically as well. But the, the substance of the contributions, uh, to my mind at least, uh, they, reach, they, they reach into the lives of migrants, into the lives of poets. Some of them are very personal, very much about how specific individuals became activists. So, so I think it's, yeah, it's a good, it's a good inspiring uh, balance and a reminder that, that uh, academics, because I am an academic at this point, that, um, that they can um, somehow help to give voice to oppressed voices. I mean, like Dalits, for example, or in this specific context of this volume, or, or talk about the, the Taiwanese sun, sunflower revolution, that there, there's, a, there's a real contribution and a source of uh, inspiration for the volume. The volume is actually dedicated uh, to Mona Baker. She's a Egyptian a translation scholar. So she's lived her life within the academy. But I think one reason why people, she was at the University of Manchester. She's now retired. She's very well known in translation studies. Uh, she actually recommended me to, to um, translate this volume. But one one reason why I think her work has such an impact and um, is, is precisely that she, so she's, she, her, it's translating dissent, I think is, is her book or edited volume. And it's about the Egyptian revolution and how activism helped us get the word out, you know, to, to around the world. And she, she really makes a convincing case that we know without trans, that the most progressive movements in history, uh, the most significant political changes couldn't have taken place. So, so if we, and, and there, I think there's a, there's a kind of tradition among some, some translators, which, which is, is understandable, but uh, kind of completely active aside, right? But, and that makes sense because there's, it's, it's reasonable that, you know, we get tired some, sometimes of just mere analysis as though, you know, it's just kind of doesn't doesn't actually do anything but but I think by really kind of isolating like what what kinds of translation are the most politically effective what are the kinds that actually change the world and make a difference and give voice to the the, the voicelet it's a way of extending the activist dimensions of translation so so I hope yeah I think the, the book has it's aspired to do that and at least while working on it I felt like it was doing that so I hope others agree well, we're happy to have Full Stop sort of be the next next home for the next stage of this project. So thanks so much for, for joining us today. And we'll, we'll look forward to your um, various contributions on the site and, and outside of it too. Great. And now back to Nabil for a reading uh, in anticipation of the kind of writing that we're going to see on the site next year. Well, Nabil, maybe it might be nice for the listeners to be able to hear some of your own writing on this subject to introduce them to the way you're generally thinking about travel. Um, sure, I'd be happy to. Um, here's a short piece I wrote um, not too long ago for a reading um, in the city. 
It is unhelpfully entitled On Place. I have been obsessed with this little epigraph from Kristeva's uh, Strangers to Ourselves. It's a kind of a book thinking about the uncanny and foreignness. And so this is an epigraph from Diderot, um, thinking about this, this idea of the world-weary traveler, you know, someone who just is like so jaded is no longer excited about anything. You will agree, sir, that this is beautiful. I don't appreciate that. You don't appreciate that? No, I have a shaggy heart. Uh, so that's the, that's the epigraph. A place one does not know described too well is, for the listener, boring. So is an unknown place left un or under-described. A place she knows told back to her in excruciating detail, that is a boring place. As well, a place known to the listener rendered with too few or incorrect details. A place without the right details is a different place. Some language proceeds as if it has been every place. A listener can recall or search out the image of most places, the result of which is very much like the place recalled or searched out, but without atmosphere and makes no sound. Atmosphere is a problem. No image or sound. It is a poor place in that listeners can tell only from other listeners under or over describing that it is anywhere. A place is only questions, are X and Y, Z sometimes. If the place is curved, the listener can otherwise project. A place with your place in it is like home. A place has got to have a nation for the plane to land. A place with a tower bright with flagging. A nation has one flag ever. A listener proposed at some point an emoji with dollar sign eyes and green dollar sign tongue or the earth from space on a flag or the spectrum of a rainbow or an icon suggesting closed captioned or closed circuit television. Lest her place experience difficulty, there's always a nation willing to step in with its flag. A place not yet filled with your place is called incentive. For a place to enter another place, the listener needs language that has been somewhere. Language that carries over is a mode of public transportation. Language that polices borders is language that traffics in local flavor. It is a spicy place. Every place the listener has known or heard tell is a wake of desolation. Every place a listener has known or heard tell is on the map. Atlas's wing open, which is one way to fit more place. How else? Place names transliterate or trace former place names or place names that are similar or the same. A place can swallow more place by garnishing the official with the vernacular. How to reduce place. This cell is like the other. It is dark or strobing or filled at intervals with deafening metal. She may have lost or had taken away natural light or quiet or difference, which precludes many places. She may have chosen to desolate every place she has known or heard tell or her had that decision made for her. A place she can see herself is homelike, less homelike if, in seeing herself in that place, her image is too realized, is over-described. If the listener knows where she is, sure she knows, but having heard one place too many, can only watch at a distance her place in it being taken. Some ways to tell one's place. Unit markings, fluorescent mini flags, Brazen mega flags, stars, prefix, near and distant mountains, local usage, call number, carrier settings, stairwell signage, watershed, razor, cyclone, quantity of rental fencing, deciduous tree, cell block, assigned transitional shelter, soil pH, currency, voltage, warmth. 
Can I ask a follow-up question based on that reading? Please, yeah. From how you've been describing travel writing and that maybe made it click in my mind a bit, you're interested in places that are named, like nations, or you talk about the displacements of, of, of people, whether it's for the ability to do artistic practice or for families who are uh, moving from one place to another. How do you see this kind of writing relating to landscape where those kind of oversaturations of meaning and marking are placed on the land? Do, do you see any relationship with your interest in travel with nature writing or are these sort of two very separate domains for you? Um, no, no, I think they're actually incredibly related. I can answer very obliquely and maybe maybe more personally than you had asked for. Um, I went to kind of an experimental college and I took a nonfiction class and it was called Sense of Place, Being in the World. And it had this sort of, I didn't know at the time, this sort of like Heideggerian almost background to it. And um, coming from Southern California, coming from just strip malls that turned into other strip malls, uh, I was so struck by this beautiful sense of elegy but that I was outside of. So everyone had these stories of their home forests being logged or this, uh, uh, you know, this uh, very local ecosystem being radically transformed. And these are places that I may have seen and have, or were meaningful to me, but they were not mine in this way. So I really couldn't situate myself in that conversation. And so I realized, you know, you know 20 years later almost, there was something really really productive there that I kind of missed out on, which was like, how do I fit in? And so maybe that gets to what you're describing a little bit in the sense that um, I'm, I'm very fascinating, but fascinated, but I also think there's a, a little bit of an alienation that now this sort of uh, naturalized or natural place that one might be from or feel you are from, that is less the case. And also for good reason, you know, most of these places I'm, I'm, I'm air quoting here <laughs> for, for the listeners that might appear in like American uh, wilderness essays or the kind of American tradition of natural writing. Uh, as Jesse Rowe recently uh, wrote in the White Flights, and you know, thinking about Marilyn Robinson and the nature of uh, American fiction, there's this inherent imagination of a uh, sort of uninhabited place, which was never the case, right? So that. Uh, one might kind of see themselves as the original inhabitants, which I think is peculiarly American. Uh, does I get it, your your question? Yeah, definitely, definitely. The reading sort of made made that theme click a little bit from what you had been describing before. It was great to get great piece of writing. It's nice to get your your like your your voice in a more developed sense in the interview. Yeah, <laughs> instead of my <laughs> coherent pre-coffee rambling. Um, Not at all. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think one of the, the thing about this place was, oh, I'm sorry, this essay was just like, having read too much about travel writing or something, mm -hmm. I was trying to like, uh, yeah. at, like too muchness. Uh, and right. you would even like situate yourself in that. Um, yeah. Right, there's a kind of image of being drowned by. Yeah. This is my natural proclivities. I will go too far, right? Where I'm like lost, losing my own thread, which is kind of my, you know, I feel like that's pretty productive for me, but sometimes <laughs> suddenly like, what is not part of this project? <laughs> right, right, yeah. 
that does it for this episode of the podcast. Hopefully you're as excited as we are about this fellow's project. I think we're going to see some really, really excellent, interesting stuff over the next six months. Thanks again to Jesse and Helen for taking time to record that introduction. And of course, to Nabil and Rebecca. Finally, a special thanks to Emily Sinkowitz and Sim Kerr, who put together this episode, which was a bit of a challenge this time. Um, And this, I believe, is going to be their final episode that they're working on, so we want to thank them so much. And and of course, uh, thanks to Matt Orenstein for providing the music.